So this week I speak with Dr. Cliff Henry, who works as a nature engagement officer for the National Trust. Cliff works at the Giants Causeway, which is a well-known site in Northern Ireland, and I'm sure a lot of you have visited. We talk about the challenges facing the site, such as rising sea levels, but also we actually talk about the engagement activities ongoing on the site with the local community and also with landowners. In particular, this includes sustainable land management measures to help protect our water quality on our catchments and therefore eventually our coastline. So I hope you enjoyed this catch up with Cliff and I will see you on the next episode. It's all about marine and the coastal sea Aquatic life and everything in between So sit on there and take a seat Coastal catch-ups with a stampede Cliff, thank you very much for coming on to Coastal Catch-Ups. I was wondering if you could start by telling us a bit about yourself and your career path to date. Well, it's uh, uh, I'm starting to feel quite old when I think about how, how long it is since I left school, so it's uh, quite a few years now. Um, I, I grew up on a farm <clears throat> near Lisburn, um, so the other end of County Andrum. Um, so I always had an uh, interest in outdoor things, uh, fresh air, um, wildlife and things like that. Um, so I followed that interest <clears throat> um, through to university. So I started off doing uh, an HND in applied biology at Georgetown uh, for two years and then transferred into a degree course at Corrine University, Biological Sciences, and then just st really stumbled into a PhD uh, again with Corrine University. Um, uh, looking at a forest insect pest um, with uh, the Forest Commission over in Scotland. So I did that for four years and then I did a little bit of uh, postdoctorate research uh, with Coleraine to start with and then in Maynooth University down south. Um, but uh, it was difficult to keep a continuity of that line of work so I thought I'd, I'd go back a little bit more to my roots and do a bit more general ecology so I ended up then getting a job with Ballymena Borough Council uh, in Ecos Park, Ecos Centre, whenever it first opened in 2000. Uh, and I stayed there for 10 years. So in that time, uh, I was actually seconded to Ulster Wildlife Trust for a little while, and uh, three years towards the end of that period. And then I applied for and got a job up at uh, National Trust at Giants Causeway. Um, so I came along whenever the visitor centre, a new visitor centre first opened. Um, uh, but then my job sort of morphed into uh, ranger posts. Um, so I was ranger then for another five years up until the pandemic. Uh, and unfortunately, um, because of the pandemic uh, and suddenly no tourists, the National Trust was very um, tight for money. So unfortunately, I lost my job. I was made redundant um, in uh, early 2021. Uh, but then I came back uh, a bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I came back um, a year a bit later. Um, so I've been here uh, in a different role as Nature Engagement Officer since uh, May of last year. So here I am. Here you a are. Older and hopefully a little bit wiser. So from a young age, then, um, your 
growing up on the farm would you say has had a impact on the trajectory of your career path then um it seems like it to me from listening to your career path don't know what you think yeah i mean definitely um my, my mother is a keen gardener so i had my had a try at that and uh, um i remember um going to my granny's house and collecting conkers and bringing them home um and they started to sprout roots so of course, my mother being a garden said, why don't you plant them? So I planted them and then trees grew and trees needed to be planted somewhere. So I ended up planting them out, myself and my brother. Um, so it was that aspect. And I remember uh, being fascinated. I came across an ant's nest um, uh, when I was probably about nine or 10. And I uh, was fascinated by the way ants behave, especially, well, I didn't know any better at that age. I, I, disturbed the nest a little bit um, and I just was fascinated how they gather up all the little babies and go and make another nest somewhere and they're able to work together and coordinate themselves. So yeah, I was hooked from an early age, early, early age. It's funny how those experiences kind of stick with you, isn't it? Um, but yeah, yeah, can be. Uh, yeah. Just a couple of things kind of can hook you, hook you in for sure. And, and then the last, so the last couple of years then, you've been up at the North Coast then in Northern Ireland. It's a beautiful part of the world. I maybe get up a couple of times in the year um, during the, probably the busy seasons over the summer. But um, for you, what is, I suppose, drawing you to that location? Well, uh, as, a, as a child, you know, we used to holiday up in uh, Caravan Park in Port Rush. Um, so that was our, you know, we weren't terribly well off. So that was our highlight of the year was getting a one week's caravan holiday in Port Rush. Um, and absolutely loved it as a youngster. Um, messing about in the, the sand, the sea, and the fresh air sometimes, <laughs> even in summer times, it was very fresh. Um, but I, I loved the coast and other things to do with the coast back then. Um, and uh, I mean, getting to study up in Korean was a it was a real treat, I suppose. Um, looking back, it's you know some of the best years of my life, uh, living in in Port Rush at that time with the sea view. Um, so if I got bored of my studies, it was just two or three minutes to the, the beach and out along there. So you know, um, I've always had an affinity for the coast. Mm. Um, so I suppose it's it's sort of a, a bit of a dream come true to be able to, to work here as well now. Um, and the, the scenery, of course, is, is fantastic. The weather sometimes isn't so fantastic, but uh, it, it makes the weather makes every day different. And the scene is slightly different every day. Sometimes stormy, sometimes calm. Um, I, I do love a, a really dramatic, howling uh, storm in the middle of winter. Um, it's just the drama of it, the, the noise, the roar, and the, the sight and smell. Even uh, you get the salty air. So <clears throat> something very special living by the coast. I think. Yeah, even on those stormy days, it's quite nice even looking out out from a window. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember as a student, um, I lived on Mark Street on the top floor and bed and breakfast in Mark Street. Um, so a good storm there. I could look out across uh, to, towards Duvaran and uh, the waves would be crashing into the cliffs there and going the full height of the cliffs. You're talking 40, 50 feet. Um, and when the wind really blew, uh, the carpet on my floor lifted off and uh, the, the slates on the roof rattled, so it was quite an experience. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Um, 
so you're you're now up at the north coast cliff um your role with the national trust for anyone listening who maybe has heard of the national trust but not maybe sure what their actual kind of where they fit in with mm-hmm. other organizations um throughout the country and um, what do they do um from a a, a big picture point of view well, from a big picture it's it's europe's largest conservation charity so uh they operate in england wales and northern ireland uh, scotland has its own version of the national trust um so within uh, england wales northern ireland they own um lots and lots of ma- uh, mansions and outdoor estates and places of scenic beauty and uh, for wildlife importance so in northern ireland um we manage um about one sixth of the coastline in Northern Ireland, and uh, ten country mansions and uh, thousands of acres of, of land. Um, so at the causeway here we have obviously the World Heritage Site, um, but I mean it's it's important for not only because uh, well this designated as World Heritage Site for the uh, the wonderful uh, shaped stones that we have, but it's also uh, a site of scientific interest for some of the species that are here. Uh, including a very tiny snail called the Narmouth coral snail. Uh, so that is a, is a, it is a tiny snail. Um, the books say a snail is up to two millimetres, but I think that's a slight exaggeration. The biggest one I've seen is probably about a millimetre and a half. And so you can imagine that it's not much bigger than a grain of sand. Uh, there are about five species that are uh, similarly small, but uh, how you tell them apart? Well, you have to get a hand lens and have a really good look at it in your palm of your hand and know what you're looking at. It's um, uh, you have to look into the mouth of the, the, the snail shell to see uh, what shape the, the these little projections are almost like teeth in the, the shell, what they look like. And that's how you tell one species from another. Um, so that snail it only lives in four four bays around the north coast, um, three of them within the World Heritage Site, and then one another mile and a half away. Um, and that's it for Northern Ireland. And even within those bays, it's a very narrow uh, little niche it lives in, very um, precise habitat. It likes to have fresh water underfoot, um, which we would get here on the shores uh, from um, basically springs coming from um, the land above, the cliffs above. Uh, so it's fresh water, water underfoot, but it also needs calcium carbonate in that water. Uh, and that calcium carbonate comes in the form of seashells washed into these little pools. Um, and it can withstand a little bit of uh, salt spray and the occasional wash over with uh, seawater. So that's seawater and very harsh conditions probably uh, knocks, knocks out any of its competitors. So um, it's able to survive here where uh, anywhere else in the country its competitors uh, would survive. They can't survive where the snail is here. So that's why it's here and not anywhere else in the country. Um, so that is of uh, national importance and European importance. That's why that's uh, a particular, particularly protected snail. So there's other interesting wildlife too. Some things uh, are only found, don't even found here nor else in Northern Ireland, uh, including uh, Britain's smallest moth. So this moth, its caterpillars live inside the leaf of a plant called sorrel. Uh, so you can imagine a leaf isn't very thick uh, and a caterpillar lives inside that. So you're talking less than a millimetre of space. So it lives between the, the upper surface of the leaf and the lower surface and it makes a little tunnel in there. Um, so it starts off, the egg. It's, uh, the adult moth kind of chews a little hole, lays an egg, 
that egg hatches and that little uh, caterpillar starts to chew away inside the leaf. Um, and mostly the uh, insects that have that sort of lifestyle, they leave a very distinctive uh, little trail uh, inside the leaf. And from that, you can tell what the species is. So um, this one particular one, it makes a slightly reddened um, uh, circular pattern. It's not like a, a Danish pastry. <clears throat> Starts in the middle and then works its way out, round and round. Um, and then the other, that uh, fully grown caterpillar drops off into the ground and uh, pupates into the adult moth. Now, the adult moth, wingtip to wingtip, fully outstretched, is only three millimetres. So that's the same uh, as the depth of a pound coin. So you imagine that's not very big. Um, why, why it's chosen the North Coast to live on, where it's so windy and exposed all the time, uh, and hasn't been found anywhere else. Well, there's, there's a mystery, and um, I haven't quite figured out why that should be. There's a few other things that are particular to here and haven't been found elsewhere either, so but that's the most interesting one. So it's quite a unique ecosystem, I suppose, and between the specific conditions with the geology and then the salt water, and then you mentioned about the, the snails needing fresh water underfoot. So it's quite unique in that sense. Are people are people and visitors aware of these species here, um, or is it kind of something you would, um, or would visitors mostly be interested in coming to the see the, the basalt, uh, columns? Well, if you think about any adverts you've seen or photographs, it's all the stones, uh, stones featured here, there, everywhere, all around the world, uh, and not much attention is paid to the wildlife. Um, some of the most interesting stuff is so small, it's hard to spot. And um, mm. so what would be another reason why most people aren't interested in it? But, you know, people come here for the scenery um, and not everybody's interested in tiny, tiny wildlife yeah. uh, like like I am. Um, so, yeah, very few, very, a very low percentage of the people coming here would know anything about the wildlife that's here. Yeah. Um, I I certainly, that's all new to me, Cliff, and I think I'm at merits a trip and you'll see me walking about <laughs> looking for moths and snails. Um, in terms of your role then at the minute, so you're an engagement officer for the National Trust. How important is it to get, um, or in fact, could you tell me a bit about your role and um, what exactly does that entail? Well, it, uh, the name kind of speaks a little bit for itself. Uh, so my job is trying to um, engage <clears throat> both the local uh, population and uh, anybody else who uh, wants to know about it, more about the, the wildlife that's here. Because, yeah, the geology of the place is so well known, but uh, very little is known about uh, or, or is widely known about the wildlife here. So that's part of my, the major part of my role is to try and uh, boost the knowledge of uh, more interesting um, and rare wildlife that's here. I do um, engagement events, quite a lot of engagement events, so uh, that's open for people to come along and uh, help me out if they want to, to do various bits of surveys and things like that, or uh, just take a look and, uh, you know, for their own interest, um, see what's there uh, and find out a little bit more about the, the uh, this, this, what's around here. So, for example, at the weekend, uh, Pad just passed there, I was doing a, a hedgehog survey. Um, 
hedgehogs, well, the, uh, it's Britain's uh, most favorite mammal, but uh, how that population is, is faring um, isn't very well known. Uh, the numbers are probably dropping, um, but there's so few records um, that it's hard to tell from 10, 20 years ago um, how much they're declining uh, and, are, and are they holding out in some areas and not doing well in other areas. Um, so last year, the, uh, there was a nationwide survey of hedgehogs. Uh, I did it here last year, but I decided to do it again this year because I didn't find any hedgehogs last year. Um, so this survey involves putting out um, uh, a meter long uh, tunnel trap. Um, it sounds scary, but uh, it's totally, totally benign. It's um, a little triangular shape, a bit like a very large Toblerone, if you imagine that sort of shape. Um, so it makes a tunnel, uh, and inside that uh, you place some cat food right in the middle. And then to either side of uh, the cat food in the middle, you have a, a strip that's painted with uh, charcoal and vegetable oil. So you can imagine if you got that in your fingers, uh, you would leave fingerprints all over the place. So it's the same for, for animals. Um, so on either side, then near the, the exit, entrance or exit of the tunnel, you have a, a sheet of white paper. So the idea is the, the animal, whatever it is, sniffs the food, comes rattling in, uh, paw prints, uh, puts the paws all over the, the charcoal and oil, uh, has a wee nibble, and then on the way out, uh, stomp, stomp, stomp over the white paper, and you're left with footprints. Um, so if there was a hedgehog in there, you'd have a hedgehog paw print left. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have any of those. Uh, lots and lots and lots of uh, little mouse paw prints. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, some very well-fed mice here in the past week, uh, and hundreds and hundreds of footprints. Um, so I had some people in there helping me to, to bring these traps back in again, and uh, they learned a little bit about footprint traps uh, and hedgehogs and the rest. Um, so next weekend, I'm doing a I'm building a, a giant bug hotel. So that's basically about 10 pallets um, screwed together. Uh, and in that, we'll stick all sorts of uh, lovely material, uh, rolled up cardboard, uh, bundles of grass, um, bundles of sticks, old slates, um, anything at all that uh, we think an insect might like to crawl into and hibernate, spend the winter there. Um, so even old books and things like that, anything at all, leave these little crevices for insects to crawl into. Um, and because it's all biodegradable, uh, it will slowly rot over years and years and create all sorts of wonderful habitats for things to live in and hibernate in. Um, so, yeah, if people can come and join in on that, um, learn what to do, give me a hand doing it. Um, that's the whole idea, get people engaged in learning about what's around them and how to help it uh, in all sorts of ways. So I, I do these events all through the year. Uh, lots of different things. Um, sometimes they're just craft events, so very very young children come along and make something and take home. Or uh, I'd also do uh, in the springtime. I did build your own salty bee box, so uh, kids came in there and uh, put bamboo into. Well, look like like nest boxes. Uh, put the bamboo in and take that home, and that's somewhere for salty bees to, to build their nest. So. I'm trying to help wildlife that's here uh, and educate people on how to look after the wildlife that they have at their home uh, and uh, learn more about what's around, what's around them, engage in them, what uh, is surrounding them.
So most of these volunteers, would they be members of local communities around the area where you are? Well, when I say volunteers, that's uh, it's probably more um, participants rather than volunteers, because most, most people just come along for one afternoon to have a bit of fun with their family yeah. and some, make something, do a bit of learning and then uh, never see them again. So mm. it's not like um, proper volunteering. I, I do have volunteers here as well uh, that help me do quite a lot of work. Um, I have, have some responsibility for the maintenance of the site as well. So any fences that fall down, I get to replace or the footpath maintenance, uh, I look after that as well. So I, I do have regular volunteers come in uh, every week. Um, they enjoy uh, getting some exercise and uh, there's no shortage of jobs for me to uh, send them to do. Um, so they have a bit of crack. Um, they see some wildlife and they learn, learn about wildlife. Uh, and uh, I get lots of help to do um, some of the, the heavier manual jobs. Um, so it's a win-win for everybody. Um, and uh, you know these guys, uh, they're actually all, all, all three of them are retired. Um, so they enjoy something to do on a regular basis, uh, gets them out and active, keeps them fit. Uh, and they have a bit of crack at the same time. So um, I can't take on a lot of volunteers, but I do have space for a few more still. Um, if any of your wonderful listeners fancy uh, some regular exercise and uh, getting out in the outdoors, I'd uh, be more than welcome to contact me. Um, I'd be very glad to have them along. Absolutely. If you're happy, I'll, uh, I can uh, I can share your email um, in the bio, but sure, we'll sort that out at the end, Cliff. But the it sounds like there's a, a good benefit to both parties there, the volunteers, have a bit of crack, get a bit of exercise, and then uh, you get a lot of jobs ticked off your to-do list. So um, it sounds like it's a, it's a good relationship. There's uh, one of the volunteers, he has uh, Italian ancestry. So uh, he's learned to speak Italian re recently. So if he hears an Italian accent, he starts to uh, chat to the visitors uh, in Italian if he can, practice his languages. So, you know, he enjoys getting done that very much. Uh, yeah, it's good. I mean, I, I could benefit as well because I get some crack out of these guys too. We, we yeah. have a little laugh now again. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, you mentioned about some volunteers being, um, your volunteer group being retired. In terms of getting the younger generation involved, I know you mentioned about your events there, but um, I suppose it suits younger people if maybe there's kids coming along um, to just one-off events. Like that's very, very important. Well, um, how important do you think that is in terms of inspiring the next generation? Uh, well, I know um, some of the folks that have come um, I've worked with <clears throat> over the last, well, uh, from the start of my career and the past job and here, uh, some kids do get inspired to to do um, sort of the college and environmental degrees because um, uh, I end up meeting them five or ten years down the line. Uh, and uh, you know, they tell me they really enjoyed doing uh, the activity with me and, and what has uh, shaped their, their choices for their career. So it does happen. I, mean, I think I think all kids do love nature and wildlife. So it's uh, it's a very easy thing to, to get them involved uh, at a young age. Um, they may get tired quickly. Uh, <laughs> they may not have the strength to do uh, a huge amount of work, but still 
um, showing them um, stuff, creepy crawlies and uh, stuff that's kind of weird. Uh, it's, it's amazing how, how engaged that sort of age group does does become. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think it's absolutely great that uh, activities like that are um, organized and it can inspire the next generation, absolutely. So um, that's brilliant. In terms of um, the management of the site then, um, is there any particular challenges of managing a site as, I suppose, dynamic as the causeway in that area? Um, it's uh, the biggest the biggest pressure is visitor pressure. Um, uh, you can imagine we get uh, in and around 1 million visitors to the Chance Causeway uh, and uh, getting on for 300,000 towards uh, Carrigaride. Um, so all those feet um, on a footpath do cause a lot of wear. Uh, fortunately, most people do stick to the footpaths, but now and again, people stray a little bit. I mean, it's it's natural. People want to explore, especially um, in such a lovely environment that we have. So if, once people stray off the, the paths, then you know they can start on damaged habitat. Um, one one individual may think, well, I'm not going to do any harm going over here, but generally speaking. Uh, people are like like sheep when they come to these sites it's, it's quite strange to watch if one goes then suddenly a hundred people will follow and and before you know it you've got a hard track where there was wasn't anything before and um, so that that is a pressure uh, and it's, it's difficult to know how to manage that because yes we do want people to come out here and enjoy themselves and have a good day but there there is a balance to be struck there uh, between people enjoying themselves and potentially damaged to the habitat. Um, we don't want the, the place trashed for the next generation. We just can't do that. Um, and who, who would want to do that, really? Um, so that's the biggest pressure. Um, climate change is also, you know, it's a concern, um, certainly. Um, uh, there's a couple of species here um, that we are fairly certain are now extinct because of the some very dry, extended dry uh, spells in the summertime um, where things were here before, suddenly they aren't. Um, and uh, exotic species coming in, um, uh, escape, escape plants from gardens tend to spread. Can, some of them can spread very rapidly. So we do have a few of those pop up here and there from time to time. Um, uh, but climate change is, is a real issue because sea level is going to rise. Uh, and that's going to bury some of the part of the Giants Causeway under, underwater. Uh, then getting access to the Giants Causeway is going to be an issue if it comes in winter storm. We do, we do have is, uh, access issues on, on major big storms mm -hmm. um, already, but um, sea level rises and potentially more storms, more frequent storms, access is going to become uh, more and more restricted as the years go on. Um, so it's a concern, but you know, what can we do as an organisation? Not a lot. It takes uh, a global um, impact to, to make a difference. Um, so those are the main ones. Um, dealing with, with people that come on site and dealing with the, the traffic that they cause uh, is quite a headache. Um, unfortunately, most people want to come uh, between the hours of 11 o'clock and 2 o'clock. 
uh, and that's when we have uh, problems with queues of traffic. Um, so it's quite a challenge dealing with that, uh, keeping everybody, all those queues moving and getting somewhere for them to park. Um, and uh, you know, from 20 years ago, visitor numbers have almost doubled in that time. If we go on another 20 years, can we really handle another doubling in visitor numbers? Um, you know, this, this site here is an open site. There aren't any fences, so people can walk on from any direction. Mm. Um, and uh, if if they want to, they can go on here from any direction. Um, but there comes a point when you say, well, this is, this is too many people. Uh, we need to control the numbers, but how on earth would we ever do that on an open site? It's it's impossible. Um, so it's it's one of life's imponderable questions. Uh, what are we going to do in the future when we get more and more people here? Um, it's not something we have an answer to, really. Um, uh, we are looking at, in, in connection with other organisations, um, trying to put on public transport here rather than people drive all the way to the site, is think about how we can uh, persuade people to get onto coaches and arrive uh, by a coach instead of a car. Uh, that will be, be a big help. Uh, but even with that, there comes a point when there will just be too many people on site. And how we deal with that is going to be a very interesting uh, issue for the future. Mm -hmm. Some planning required then, thoughts and sitting down around the table, I suppose. And um, I found it interesting yes. that you were mentioning about uh, the pressures that you have now. Um, I can't believe there are species there that you potentially went extinct. Um, but then also the the down the line problem which i say down the line is probably closer than we think you know um about sea level rise so it's it's it's, it's a complex area to manage i'm sure um but sorry i inter interrupted you there cliff before you were going to say something well i was going to add that uh, i mean too many visitors it's not a, a problem that's unique to here it's happening all over the world um you just have to think places like Madrid where you see signs saying tourists stay away mm -hmm. uh, and uh, like places like Venice where the, the locals just can't live anymore because there's too many tourists and mm -hmm. um, that's I mean, that's a worldwide problem uh, and we are suffering from it too but how, how on earth do we ever solve that problem I really don't know yeah it's um the I think I've I spoke on my uh, two podcasts ago about we don't have to get into it now because it's probably a very sensitive topic up there but the you know even holiday homes and local communities the price of houses going up and uh, is a major issue for actually local people who work who, who can't afford um the the increasing housing prices around the coast you know it's um yeah it's a it's a sensitive topic i'm sure um up there but I, I suppose that's that that is part of the issue of managing these places sustainably you know you have the benefit the economic benefits having a site like this and the opportunity to generate money but you don't want to generate an income at the expense of the environment such as the pressures you're talking about um eroding paths and um and then also um kicking out local communities as well and, and creating conflict so it is a balancing act i suppose between all those factors yeah there there is a balance to be struck um 
Uh, I mean, really, we would like the tourists to, to spend more time in other areas near nearby because we get so many people who travel. Uh, I mean, I've spoken to people who've traveled from America, Atlanta, and Dublin, come up here the next day, and that's all they're doing. They're straight back to Dublin, straight back onto the airplane on the way home again. Mm -hmm. um, we would love people to stay and spend their money in other places as well, not just here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it could be a benefit for the whole community, not just uh, the trust. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's, that's, for, that's for someone else to, to try and uh, figure that one out. Um, yeah. So um, I'm always conscious in these chats, I can get drawn towards the pressures and challenges, Cliff. And I, 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 I don't like that because I, I feel like I'm an optimistic person. So I want to uh, go back to the, the, the good stuff. Um, the, a site like uh, the North Coast and the Jazz Causeway, there is a lot of opportunities, I'm, I'm sure, of implementing conservation measures and um, provi providing, we're talking about climate change, actually adapting to climate change and maybe um, helping nature adapt. Is there, is there anything, anything like that you're implementing up there? It's, it's difficult uh, here because, um, for example, snail uh, occurs very close to the shoreline uh, and uh, that's on, um, without going into too much detail, it's, uh, it's all formed by geology. So after the last ice age, uh, the sea was cutting into the bottoms of the cliffs, but after the last ice age, all that ice melted and the, the land started to rise. Uh, and created these raised beaches, so-called. That's where the snail is. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever sea level rises again, uh, well, these snails can move inland a little bit, but they have very little space to move between the shore and the bottoms of the cliff. Mm -hmm. Once you get the bottoms of the cliff, there's nowhere else for them to go. Mm -hmm. um, so really, there are really between a rock and a pretty watery place. Um, so they are uh, certainly under threat with climate change, and you know, there's nothing we can do about that. Mm -hmm. um, there are other conservation uh, methods we do here. Um, the North Coast Ranger team, who manage the, the farmland connected to the Jazz Causeway, tr trust owns uh, several farms um, just inland from the, the cliff tops. Mm -hmm. So, North Coast Ranger team uh, have implemented uh, a way of managing some of the, the farmland there. Uh, well, they are uh, planting a lot of hedges and more trees. Um, and wider hedgerows as well, uh, but also the, the improved grassland fields there, they're trialling a system uh, that uh, doesn't require any uh, artificial fertiliser to be spread. So that land is uh, ploughed and sowed with um, what's called herbal lays. so it's a mixture of uh, grass, uh, native species of grasses and the very deep roots uh, and lots and lots of um, things like clovers that are able to fix nitrogen out of the air. Um, so the idea is that you know this is more resilient farming, more resilient to uh, the conditions that we get here, uh, and potentially you know, as, as our weather becomes more erratic, potentially there could be longer dry spells. But uh, the native species of grasses tend to have deeper roots, mm -hmm. so we're able to draw that moisture up from uh, lower in the soil profile, uh, and they also draw up more uh, micronutrients as well. Uh, little. Uh, elements that are very good for uh, animals' health and also for our health. 
um, all, all these um, clovers and things, uh, wildflowers, uh, produce a lot of nectar for wildlife. Um, so it's, it's a way of farming intensively. So it's still producing quite a lot of food, but it has huge benefits for uh, the, the natural environment as well. And this way of farming, they, they think, uh, fixes more carbon in the soil as well. Um, and uh, the livestock actually uh, uh, thrives better on this compared to uh, the systems that most farmers use now, just uh, monocultures of perennial ryegrass with lots of fertilizer. Mm -hmm. So it's a win-win, should be a win-win for everybody. Yeah. Uh, and if it works in uh, our exposed conditions, then it could work for, for uh, the rest of Northern Ireland. So that's being trialed here. Uh, you know, the trust is looking at uh, lots of different ways to try and um, help. Uh, we need to survive, so it's providing a sustainable living for farmers, but you know, help wildlife at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I mean, three, uh, sorry, four years ago now, um, we uh, were able to fence off one of the, the bays down, well, or where the snail actually lives, the, the first bay behind the, the visitor center. Um, so there'd been nothing. Uh, and uh, no animals, like no livestock in there for the best part of 50 years nearly. Mm -hmm. um, so we were able to fence that off and reintroduce uh, livestock grazing in there, uh, which will benefit the snail uh, and help break up some of the, the thatch of uh, dead grasses that are there, which will uh, improve things for all sorts of uh, wildflowers and in turn then all sorts of insects and birds and everything. So we're, we're trying to manage, trust overall is trying to manage its ground better than it has done in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, trust has quite a lot of uh, interesting um, uh, species rich uh, land, but it also has quite a lot of uh, intensely farmed farmland. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's trying to improve a lot of, of everything. Um, yes, we still need to, to grow food, but we can do it uh, in a much better way to, to provide for our own needs, but also to provide for wildlife as well, and that's that's key to getting a getting a balance there uh, going into the future. Mm -hmm. I think you're spot on about um, saying getting the balance. Um, are these practices new practices? I know you said they're being trialed, but have they been taken from like an old, like maybe years ago, like old school farming, or is it are these all very innovative um, measures that have been thought up? I think the, the idea of uh, this sort of thing has been around for a long time. I mean, most folks, farmers will know about clover mm -hmm. uh, and sowing clover in their silage swords, and particularly in, in grazing swords. Um, a good crop of clover means you have less fertilizers to buy. Uh, so farmers have known about it for a long time. But it's uh, uh, it's a slightly different method of uh, grazing the land as well. So. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure how long the idea has been around, but uh, probably 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. um, more so in organic farming, but it's trying to make that shift into the mainstream. Uh, yes, it does take a little bit more effort, but um, when you get a huge benefit for wildlife, well, it's it's worth taking. Uh, and uh, you know, a low, lower carbon footprint, you know, obviously that's very important these days. So. Um, it's worth doing, I think. Um, it's just persuading farmers since they've been told for generations now, uh, you know, increase um, your productivity by pulling out hedgerows and uh, sowing fertilizer here and everywhere and killing every weed that ever pops its head up. Um, it's trying to 
uh, change mindsets and you know um, trying to let uh, the population at large, not just the farmers, everybody has to do their part here, is to accept a little bit uh, of untidiness for the benefit of uh, nature and benefit for wildlife, and then ultimately it does benefit us as well. So it's it's uh, as part of that whole system of things. Um, but it takes time for people to see that this sort of thing can work, mm -hmm. uh, and that it's a good thing to do for for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that all takes time. Mm -hmm. And it, it's good these trials you're doing when you can demonstrate and have evidence of these um, ideas that, that they work and that will help change the mindset of uh, other people and um, other landowners and um, farmers. So, yeah, it's great. It's great to hear about that, Cliff, actually. Yeah. Um, so, Cliff, um, I'll not keep you much longer. Um, just before we go, um, you mentioned about seeking volunteers and uh, the activities ongoing. Um, it, so where can people find out? Um, is it best they contact you directly or can they find out through the uh, National Trust website or what's the best way for people to find out? Uh, we do have details on uh, the National Trust website. Um, there are uh, web our email addresses there to, to find out. Um, and it will come through to us um, by a roundabout route, but it will come through to us. So that's the, the best way to go. Um, uh, and it's basically, I, mean, I, I have volunteers that help me do uh, all of the, the hard graft uh, work out around the site here, but there are also volunteer opportunities for things like uh, wildlife surveying. So mm -hmm. in the springtime, uh, we do need help to count all sorts of different kinds of birds here and um, throughout the summer I also do butterfly counts and um, so there are lighter volunteering tasks to be done as well mm -hmm. and of course in the visitor centre um, there are a number of roles there so if uh, people go on the website they'll be able to see find uh, different roles that are available mm -hmm. and there's, there's something to suit everybody and uh, not just those who want uh, a good day's exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah um, awesome. Uh, and then I was also going to say about, we were talking about volunteers, but I suppose in case we've inspired anyone to go and visit the Giants Causeway, a couple of takeaways that I could maybe suggest, uh, if I may, when listening to you, uh, firstly, enjoy your day, uh, the awesome scenery, um, but possibly consider taking public transport and sticking to the designated paths. Um, and then if you see a snail, don't remove it or I'm off. Um, but if there's anything else I've missed there, uh, you maybe want to suggest uh, uh, work away? Well, of course, being a, a, a nature conservation charity, um, depending on uh, subscriptions, we, we always try and encourage people to, to join the National Trust. Mm -hmm. um, there are benefits of doing that, um, uh, free access to every other National Trust site in all of Britain. Um, so we would encourage people to do that also. Um, but yes, public transport uh, or common bicycle, um, yeah, if you can, that all helps uh, with our carbon footprint and uh, management of traffic and people on site. Mm -hmm. um, I think you've covered the, the other bases there, okay. 
And then if you do sign up uh, to the National Trust, you get free access to all the sites around Northern Ireland. Is, is that correct? Or what further field? Um, I can edit this out if this yeah. is wrong. But Yeah, for all free access to all sites in Northern Ireland and England and Wales. Mm -hmm. So plenty of beautiful locations to explore. Um, Cliff, I'll, I'll draw our conversation to a close now. Um, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the Coastal Catch-Ups. It's been great to hear about the your work as an engagement uh, officer, the activities you've um, been carrying out. I think people will find it fascinating to hear about the wider ecology and interesting features of the causeway apart from the basalt columns um so hopefully if anyone's up visiting they can uh maybe look further afield i know it'll be there to see the, the main main feature but uh it'll give them other things to the the observe so um and then the in terms of the sustainable farming practices i think that's um great to hear because Lewis podcast is about uh, sustainable coastlines. It's all it's all linked. If we look at the issues going on with water quality and from agriculture, it's 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 all linked. And um, for the waterways are connected, and or something happening and upper catchment can have an impact downstream for sure. So, um, I think it's great to hear about the the wider wider management measures and ways that, that we can do things more sustainably. So, um. I think we've packed a lot in and I kind of I don't even know how long we've been chatting, but um just want to say thank you and uh I'll hopefully catch you soon. You're very welcome, my pleasure.